I understand the idea here for these uh, couple of weeks is that we're all looking at some similar passages. The passage is assigned, so this is not the passage I chose. And uh, the idea is that we're to have some time to think through this passage and say, hey, what is God saying here and what is God saying to me today that I can apply to my own life? And uh, we have this opportunity not only to think about it, but also to discuss it with one another. So I want you to do that as we uh, consider this. Uh, Bottom line of all this in this passage, we're going to come up with something that we're going to talk about, something called fear. And I don't know if any of you are afraid of anything, but apparently the Spokesman Review is very concerned about fear because a couple of weeks ago they published this whole article on what are we supposed to be afraid of in 2015. So just so you know, this is on their heart and mind. (laughs) I was one of these kids that grew up with a lot of fear. Uh, Some of you have heard this story before, but I didn't have a brother or a sister to keep me on the straight and narrow about what I was afraid of. So I grew up fearing all kinds of things. I got to tell you this, it was up to a babysitter that I had who actually convinced me that I would not go down the drain of the tub when I took a bath. (laughs) I was that afraid. I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of the cellar of our house. We had a big coal bin in that cellar. I hated to go there. I was frightened to go there. I didn't like going to bed at night. I covered myself when I was a little kid with all kinds of animals and huddled around them. When I got a little bit older, I convinced my parents to let me have a knife on the bed, on the table next to my bed. I don't know what I was going to do with this knife, but somehow it gave me comfort. I was afraid. I was afraid of all kinds of things, but the worst fear I had growing up was the gang of boys that were much older than me that hung out at Jim and Annie's grocery store, which was right at the end of our block of row houses in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They frightened me. They bullied me. They hurled insults at me. They chased me. They gave me all kinds of problems. And I had to walk on my way to school and my way home from school every day past Jim and Annie's corner, hoping the little gang would not be there. I tell you all of this because one day, in a matter of minutes, all my fear disappeared. One day I was coming home late in the afternoon because I had gotten on the junior varsity football team at high school and I'm walking down with my uniform in in a bag over top of my shoulder because the coach had said we had to take our uniforms home to get them washed and I'm dutifully walking down the street and I realized the gang was on the corner. I didn't know what to do, couldn't escape them, so I crossed the street as far away from them as I could possibly get, walked further down the street, and I began to hear them hollering, talking, and one of them said, whoa, he's on Lincoln High School's football team. Boom. Just like that. It was over. It was all finished, all gone. The fear ended then. So as we go through this passage of scripture, I want you to be thinking about what kind of fears you might have. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 6, 19 verses. We're not going to read all of them. There's an outline in your bulletin. Take out the outline and you can follow along with me. We won't, uh, we'll skip over some of them. 
Let's look at a little bit of historical background. I listened to James' message last week. He didn't include this, so I just want to go over this with you again. This is about what is happening after the days of King David and his son, King Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel gets divided into the north and the south. And then the Assyrians come and they take the northern kingdom into captivity. And the Babylonians come and they take the southern kingdom into captivity. And finally, the Persians' empire rules it all. And in their goodness, the Persian emperor allows the Jews to go back to their homeland. And about 450 years before Christ, a man named Ezra comes back to the land of Jerusalem, the land of Palestine, and he helps to rebuild the temple of God. Now, Solomon was instructed where to build that temple. And just so you know, if you want to look it up, I listed some passages, Joshua 15, 2 Samuel 5, 2 Chronicles 3. David was told exactly where to put this temple. Solomon put it exactly where he was told to do. It was in the middle of a place called the City of David. The City of David consists of where that red line is, around that little place below what would be the whole city of Jerusalem today. The interesting part of all this is, just for your information and discussion, there's some question now as to where Solomon actually put that temple and where Ezra put his temple afterwards. Because we all know, because we're much smarter than all the rest of these people, where the temple is supposed to go. It goes in a place called the Dome of the Rock, way up on top of a big hill where there is an Islamic mosque, right? Well, there's a new book out in 2014 called The Temple. And if you want to have some fun and let your mind just be kind of blown away, he said, that's the wrong place that actually Ezra built the temple in the city of David, around that little red outline, and that's where Solomon had put the temple, and that's where the new temple, if they ever build one, has to go. Just for your information, that little area is all in Israeli hands. It's a park where the old temple was, and they could actually build the temple anytime they want. Wouldn't that be fun? Okay, that's just an aside. After Ezra builds the temple, then a man named Nehemiah comes back to build the city wall. Now, it's not the big city wall of Jerusalem that we know today. It's this little city of David wall. He comes back to build the wall. The foundation is still there. He comes back with a number of people who have been captive, and they begin to build the wall. That's about 400 years before Christ. You know the story in Nehemiah. They have to get permission to do this. There are problems when they do this. There are people in opposition to them doing this. We met some of the names, at least if you've read through Nehemiah. Sanballat, he's the governor of Samaria. He doesn't like the idea that they're going to build a wall. Guy named Tobiah, he's an Amorite official. He doesn't like the idea they're going to build a wall. There is Geshem, there is Shemaiah, chapters 4 and 5, all the problems about building the wall. But finally we get to chapter 6 of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah has almost completed the building of the wall. And in chapter 6, verse 15, this is what it says. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elu in 52 days. 
Now, this is not a huge wall. You couldn't build a big stone wall with people who are not stonemasons, just a ragtag bunch of people in 52 days, unless there was already a foundation there, and unless all they had to do was to kind of patch it up as best they could. And that's what they've done. But just before the wall is complete, Nehemiah came back under God's directions to build the wall. And just before he gets the wall finished, there are some final attempts to stop him. And there are three of them. And we're going to read them. Here's the first one. I want to call this, Let's Be Friends. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, to Nehemiah, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakkephorim in the plain of Ono. Now, Hakkephorim is about 30 miles outside of the city of David. And it's like they said to him, you know, we've been enemies all this time. We've been giving you a hard time, but we're ready now to have a truce. We're ready now to be friends. Let's go out here and we'll play a little golf and we'll drink a little tea and we'll just be good friends. You want to do that, don't you, Nehemiah? So let's stop this wall building. Let's take a little time to just have a truce together. It's kind of like Hamas goes to Israel today and says... I want to make peace now. I just decided I want to make peace. So let's get together over in Qatar and we'll just kind of have a good time there. A week or two we'll spend together and we'll just be friends. Nehemiah says, no way. I'm not going to be deterred from finishing this wall. Even though if I tell you no, people are going to think that's the wrong thing to do. I mean, here they are offering peace and truce, and you're not going to do it? Aren't you afraid of what people are going to say? Second attempt. We know you plan to rebel. Chapter 6, verse 6. It was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You got this? They come to him and they say, we know why you're building this wall, Nehemiah. You just want to be the king. You want to start a kingdom and you want to be the king. Now, Nehemiah can deny that all he wants. Nehemiah would say, no, I'm not doing that. I, uh, no, no, it's not that at all. It doesn't make any difference. He's being accused, falsely accused. What do you do when you're falsely accused? That's a terrifying thing. We do that today in politics. Have you noticed this? Politicians accuse other politicians of things that are not true. Have you ever noticed this? And it takes three, four, five years for them to prove that was never true. But it doesn't matter. The damage is already done. Well, Nehemiah doesn't want the Persian king to think that he's in rebellion. Nehemiah doesn't want the Persian king to think that that he actually is trying to set up a new empire and and be a king. This is all wrong. So stop doing this and and we better get together and we better better solve this problem because we know what you're trying to do. And Nehemiah said, no, no, I'm going to keep building the wall. You go ahead and accuse me. Here's the third one. 
Chapter 6, verse 10, they tell Nehemiah, your life is in danger. Shemaiah, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Nehemiah, we've got to stop this wall building. We've got to get over to the temple and lock ourselves in so they don't kill us. We're not even sure that this is Ezra's temple they're talking about. may have been a pagan temple. doesn't matter. Nehemiah, you're going to die if you keep building this wall. They're coming to get you, so I'm your friend now, and we've got to get together and lock ourselves in so that you don't die. You want to quit now, Nehemiah? In March of 1999, uh, the NATO started bombing Yugoslavia, old Yugoslavia, especially the cities of Belgrade and Novi Sad, in uh, Serbia. And uh, I happened to run into, of all things, uh, a young couple who were pastoring a church in Novi Sad. They had started a church. It was a great church. They were both Canadians, and it was just going great guns. And we met her, who arrived in Budapest, where we were living, with three of her children, two preteens girls and one younger boy, and they had been in Germany looking at a school situation for their kids, and they were on their way back home when the bombing started. And they didn't know what to do, so they stopped, and we ended up housing them at our house. And finally she got in touch with her husband, who was still down in Serbia, where the bombs were falling right on top of their house, or right near them. And she said, please, you got to come up here and get me. I don't know what to do. This is awful. And so he uh, finally got out of Serbia, came up to Budapest, Hungary, not very far away. And they stayed at our home for a number of days. And we said to them, oh, my, do not go back. This is really dangerous. You don't want to go back there. And, you know, they thought about it and they prayed about it. Danny and Vera still remember them. And one morning they said to us, you know what? We're going back home today. He said, oh, man, no, you're going to get, it's, no, it's too dangerous. You can't take that. Yeah, yeah, that's, this is what God wants. This is our wall to build. And they went back home. And they did just fine. Everybody wants to stop Nehemiah from building the wall. And Nehemiah, he caught it. He knows what's going on here. He gets the message, and four times he says it. I'm going to read them to you. Chapter 6, verse 9. They all wanted to frighten us. Chapter 6, verse 13. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid. Chapter 6, verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat? Oh my God, according to these things that they did, they wanted to make me afraid. Chapter 6, verse 19. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Principle, fear can shut down wall building. You like that? Now it doesn't apply to us because we're not building any walls. Or are we? Do we have any walls that we're supposed to be working on? in our life? Does this apply to us in any way? Now I'm going to give you some stuff here that might be a little off the wall, but you think about it for a while. 
I mean, isn't there a foundation wall for all of us? And if this foundation wall in our life is not functioning well, aren't we in trouble? Don't we need to make sure that the foundation wall stands sturdy? Here's what I think the foundation wall is. It's found in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 10. It's found in the New Testament in Luke chapter 10. This is what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's not too tough. Oh yeah, it is. That's the foundation wall. I think we're all to make sure that that foundation wall stands. And then there's the walls themselves, the walls that we get to build. They're all different. We all get to work on different parts of the walls. We all have different walls to build. Dave and Shelley Midcalf are going to build a wall in Papua New Guinea. Most of you are not going to work on that wall. Pastor James and Abby are working on a wall building right here in this church. Some of you have the opportunity to work with them on that wall. But you have your own kinds of walls to build. In a retirement home, in a neighborhood, at school, at work. It doesn't matter. What has God told you to do? Build the walls to his glory. And don't be afraid. Don't let fear stop you from building the walls. What kind of fears? You want to have fun with this? All kinds of fears. The fear of failing health. I know I'm going to get cancer. I'm going to get ALS. I'm afraid I'm going to get something horrible happen to my body or my mind. I'm going to, I'm going to get dementia. Some of you already have physical problems and we're afraid they're going to get worse. I can't build a wall. I'm afraid of physical problems. I think that even applies to the foundation. Sometimes physical problems get us so discouraged that we get angry and disappointed with God. We ignore all the walls. How about the fear of financial loss? Remember when the first time you decided, you know, I don't know if I'm really making enough money to ever retire. Some of you have retired and now you know you didn't make enough money. <laughs> Does the fear of financial loss stop us from building walls? I had a great story. I just spent four hours about a month or so ago with a doctor friend that I, I actually know his parents. But I want to tell you the story. This guy was in practice, a doctor, doing fine. Lives in New Mexico, by the way, so you don't know who he is. And uh, his dad came down with a very, very serious problem with his kidneys. He had to go on dialysis, and the doctor that he was being treated by gave him just six months to live. Well, this doctor said, you know, I, I think the best thing I can do is take care of my dad. So he quit his practice. He stopped. Wasn't he afraid of financial loss? He said, no, I quit my practice. Brought the dialysis equipment into his home. He moved into the home with the family. And dad lived seven more 
years. I was with the doctor about uh, two months after his dad died. You know what the biggest disappointment in his life was? He said, so many of my Christian friends have criticized me because I gave up my practice. And these were his words to me. What greater thing was there for me to do than to take care of my dad? To build that wall for the glory of God. But financial fears could have prevented that. How about the fear of rejection? How about the fear that where I work, I'm going to be passed over if I say something or do something that they reject me from a promotion or a pay increase? How about the fear of rejection in marriage or any other kind of relationship? I'm afraid of being rejected, and so I I don't work on the wall there. How about the fear of failure? doesn't make any difference whether they're relationship failures or whether they're the dreams that you have. And it doesn't work out. But does this cripple us and keep us from wall building because of the fears in our life? How about the fear of the unknown? I've talked to lots of people who've talked about going to live in another culture, but have never done it. Too fearful out there with a different language and a different people and a different place. And add to that one, fear of death. I don't know about that. It's an unknown. And does that fear cripple us? Because Nehemiah seems to say this truth. Fear shuts down the wall building in all of us. On the foundation wall and the walls that God sets us to build. So let me ask you a question. Are we being frightened today? We are. We are being frightened by all kinds of things. The earth is warming. That's good for me. I kind of like it this way. (laughs) Not so good for my relatives that live on the East Coast, but that's their problem. (laughs) Actually, I just read a new book called Dark Winter. He makes claim for the fact that the earth is not warming at all, that the sunspots are indicating we're we're going into an ice age. But either way, don't worry about it because it's all coming to an end. Either you're going to heat yourself to an end or you're going to freeze yourself to an end. (laughs) That's the future. Oh, we're being frightened. We're being frightened by terrorist information. The Islamic State is frightening to us. Now we're being told they're all over the world, they're everywhere. And add to that all the crazies who are just around us that do crazy things. How about this one? You know, over in Wyoming, there is this wonderful place called Yellowstone. It's a super volcano, and someday in the near future, it's going to blow, and when it blows, you people in Spokane are all done. (laughs) We live in a world that is trying to frighten us. How about diseases? We just went through Ebola. Did anybody get Ebola here? Does anybody know anybody that got Ebola? Oh, no, no, because we moved on now to the flu for which the vaccine didn't work. And now we're on to measles. Now we're always being frightened by diseases. And then there's always, your money system is going to collapse. You all know that. You have to buy gold and silver. And guns to protect the gold and silver. (laughs) We hear nothing 
but frightening things. There aren't going to be any more medical doctors. There aren't going to be enough medical doctors to take care of us in the future. Aren't you nervous and frightened about that? Doesn't that make you a little jittery? How about the electric grid? I mean, somebody's going to get in and just shut down the whole electric grid. I hope you have enough food and enough heat in your house to take care of things for five years while the grid is shut down. We are constantly being frightened. I want to share with you that Jesus had some things to say on this subject of being afraid. Here they are, Matthew 10, 26. Jesus said, have no fear of them. Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body. They can't kill your soul. Matthew 10, 31, fear not. And John writes in John 14, 27, his observation of Jesus' words when he gives the reason why we're not supposed to be afraid. Not supposed to be afraid of any of this. Peace, said Jesus, I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world does, not as the world gives peace, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your hearts be afraid. Jesus said, look, you don't have to be afraid because I give you peace. We all know that Hebrew word shalom. We've spent lots of times in the past. You've heard all the meaning of this word. This word shalom is, is a word that is so big that you really can't translate this word. This word for peace. This word means complete, whole, healthy, well, rested, prospering, sound, tranquil, all of that. It is absolutely perfect perfect peace. And Jesus said, that's what I give you. I give you that peace. Now listen, don't misunderstand us. There is some kind of peace that comes from the world. You can have some peace if you have a bigger bank account. A little bit of peace, worldly peace. But not the peace that Jesus gives. This is the peace that Jesus gives, not what the world gives. I give to you. Now here is why Jesus gives us peace. And here is why we can have this. From John in 1 John chapter 4 verse 18. There is no fear in love. We sang a little bit about that today. But perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God gives us perfect, whole, complete, not able to be improved upon love. And when we got that, what is there to be afraid of? We can build that foundation strong. And we can build the wall that God sets us in our life to build. Doesn't matter what the world throws at us. We understand the perfect love of God. A story. In 1936, that's even before I was born. In 1936, a very unusual thing happened. At least the one I know of. In 1936, nine young men got on an ocean-going steamship 
sailed all the way to Berlin, Germany. They were from the University of Washington. They were on an eight-oared racing shell. You know what they are? And they had qualified for the Olympics in Berlin, Germany in 1936. And they rode not as the elite of the East Coast from Harvard and Yale, but the sons of farmers, the sons of lumbermen, a bunch of guys that just got together at the University of Washington that had no esteem whatsoever. And they won the gold medal in front of Adolf Hitler right before the war. They beat Italy by one-sixth of a second. And they beat Germany by one second to take the gold medal. Now I know they practiced. And I know they were talented. And I know they were strong. But there's one other thing that I On the ship that they took across the ocean, they took a boat with them. It was their boat. It was the boat that they would row in that race. That boat was handmade by a man in Washington, in Seattle, named George Pocock. George Pocock was a Brit who had been building, racing, eight-oared, four-oared, two-oared shells his lifetime. He died in 1976. I like this story because this guy, George Pocock, was a perfectionist, which I am not. (laughs) And I am amazed by perfectionists. He took pieces of wood from native trees. He hand cut them. He hand trimmed them. He built these racing shells that became known literally all across the country. Eventually, he was selling racing shells to every school in America that could afford them. But he built that boat for the University of Washington for 1936 to win the gold medal. It was perfect. That's what God's love is like. It is perfect. And when you get in that boat, got nothing to fear. It's perfect love. And all fear is gone. You got this from Nehemiah chapter 6? God has perfected love. And that's why it gives us peace. Enjoy his love. Bask in it. I got to tell you, this is a little embarrassing, but I got to tell you it anyway. I love it when the sun comes up in the morning. And especially I love it when I get up before it comes up. And I get to watch it come up. I don't like those gray, foggy days, but every now and then, We get a bright, sunny one like today. And if you got up early this morning, you could just watch the sun come up. I got to put drops in my eyes every morning when I get out of bed. And I have to close my eyes for five minutes 
for the drops to be effective. So every morning at 5.30, like it was this morning, or 6 o'clock, or somewhere around there, I put the drops in my eyes, and I get to sit in the living room for five minutes. My wife is usually still in bed, so I put the coffee on, put the drops in my eyes, and I sit for five minutes, and I enjoy God. Just quiet. I enjoy it like the sunrise. I bask in it because it is his perfect love that casts out all fear. When the fears go away, the wall building goes on. On the foundation and the wall that God has called you and me to build. Doesn't make any difference whether it's Nehemiah or you put your name and I'll put my name in there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these Old Testament books have something to say to each of us. And we confess this morning that we all do have fears. Periodically they creep into our life. Probably because we forget a little about your perfect love. Teach us what it means to bask in that every day all day long if we can. That perfect love of God through Jesus Christ that equips us to build whatever wall you give us to build. And we praise you for your word. We praise you for being who you are and for the privilege that we have to walk as your children by your grace through Jesus Christ. What a delight, the perfect love of God. In his name, amen.